0: Um, thank you, so welcome to uh, what we're calling today Rationality and Irrationality in Government. And this event is part of a series of events um, which is at conciliance Events, and it's sponsored by the European Forum of Philosophy. My name is Tally Sherat and I'm a neuroscientist at UCL. Um, and today I have the great pleasure of introducing Professor Kass Seinstein who is the professor, the Robert Wilmsley University Professor at Harvard Law School. And he is the previous administrator um, at the White House um, Office of Information Regulatory Affairs in the Obama administration. Um, Professor Seinstein has offered many impactful, numerous impactful books and articles, and uh, the one that um, is probably well uh, best known is *Nudge*, which he co-authored with Richard Thaler. Um, and he talks about how behavioral science should have an impact and how they should have an impact on public policy. So today he's gonna tell us a little bit about that. And he's gonna start by um, speaking about choosing not to choose. Um, And then we will have um, a discussion about that specifically and generally about behavioral sciences and their impact on public policy. And we will open it up for for Q&A as well. And um, just to tell you that if you're tweeting please use the hashtag at LSE government. So it's my very, very great honor to introduce Professor Jassine Singh. Okay,
1: great, thank you so much, there's so many of you. And uh, if the slides function, they do. Uh, We are going to talk about choosing not to choose. Um, and I'll tell you the background of these remarks. There's an idea that Richard Taylor and I worked on, and other people have worked on, similar ideas, about the possibility of having instruments, whether it's a disclosure policy, or a warning, or a default rule, that doesn't impose economic sanctions, or threaten anybody, or subsidize anybody, um, but it can work a little bit like a GPS, and uh, steer people in directions that make their lives go a bit better. Uh, We do not call our book libertarian paternalism. Um, Had we, I think no one would have bought it. Um, Maybe my sister wouldn't. Uh, Since the book's been uh, published, there's been a lot of reaction. Uh, Within governments, there's been interest in thinking about low-cost, potentially effective tools. And uh, certainly in the United Kingdom and the United States, there's been some attention given to default rules and information disclosure. Uh, But there have also been some concerns. Uh, One concern is about individual autonomy and the possible threat that some nudges can pose to our autonomy. Uh, Another idea is that human dignity is uh, potentially at risk with some nudges. And here the antonyms of autonomy really is force. The antonym to dignity is humiliation. And the thought, separate thoughts are we don't want people to be infantilized and we don't want people to be even kind of quietly coerced. Uh, there are also questions about respect for persons and whether nudges are sufficiently bad. And there are questions about learning and its importance and whether nudges might truncate learning. Okay. Uh, the images are everywhere, whether you like them or not. Um, There's a novelist named David Foster Wallace, uh, who recounted a tale, I don't think this is a true tale, but it's uh, a tale of two little fish, young fish, swimming in the water. And then a big fish comes by, they're swimming, and says to the little fish, howdy, boys, how's the water? And after the big fish moves, one of the little fish says to the other little fish, what the hell is water? And the reason the joke is a behavioral economics joke is that uh, we are all pervaded by water or nudges, whether we like them or not. In fact, weather is itself a nudge. In cold weather, people tend to buy clothes, and even automobiles, but they return in a hurry, a uh, nudge Produces purchasing decisions that people frequently regret. A website nudges, whatever is first or second or in large font will attract the eye. A cafeteria inevitably nudges. Um, we know that people wonder, they suffer from present bias, often see the future as a foreign country, later land, and they're not sure they're ever going to visit. Uh, Professor Sherat has written about optimistic bias. Uh, A substantial majority of the population suffers or benefits from unrealistic optimism. Notwithstanding the omnipresence of nudges and the non feasibility of a social world for humans or canines or any living creature that is nudge free. And notwithstanding the fact that human beings are not irrational, that would not be the right thing to say, but boundedly rational and subject to mistakes, the objections I noted at the beginning about dignity and autonomy uh, deserve, deserve an answer. OK, what I'm going to focus on, in a way, is a version of a U2 argument, meaning I'm going to be urging that those who insist on choosing all the time, and active choosing in particular, are engaging in a form of paternalism of their own. They are nudging people also, and in a way that people frequently don't like. If you've ever seen a message on a website that has the blessed words, please don't ask me again, and ask you to check that, then you're on to the principal thesis, which is that choosing not to choose is often Uh, The right thing to do given the complexity of life and the possibility of being overwhelmed by uh, questions. Okay, for example, there are retirement plans and health plans, there's organ donation, and there's privacy. In all of those contexts, some institution is in a position of deciding whether they ask you, What do you want? whether they have an opt-in default rule in which, say, you don't have privacy unless you say you want it, or have an opt-out default rule in which, say, you're in a retirement plan unless you say you don't want it. In fact, there's a more extreme version of the automaticity of default rules, which we might call predictive shopping, which arises when institutions know a lot about people and decide to send them things that those institutions know the shoppers will want before they've indicated their preferences. That's a little alarming, yes, but uh, it might save some time. Okay, here's the human condition, now that you see it. It's gone. Uh, The claim is that it is often rational to choose not to choose, especially in view of what we might call the bandwidth problem, that is people have limited bandwidth in their heads, the institutions have a sustained decision to make, omnipresent decision, whether to use an impersonal general default rule for a population, like you're all in a retirement plan, or you're all out of a retirement plan, or instead to ask you to choose, or instead to have a personalized default where the plan you're in suits your, let's say, age, gender, and economic situation. It's a form of paternalism to override people's choices, including their choice not to choose. So that's the U2 argument with respect to enthusiasm for active choosing. Okay, I'm going to be making four basic claims. They're going to be a little abstract and there are more words than would be ideal. So bear with me if you will. The impersonal default rule is generally better than active choosing when the context is confusing and unfamiliar. When people would prefer not to choose when learning isn't so important and the population isn't diverse along a relevant dimension. So if we have a group of people who can be well suited, let's say, by a retirement plan that suits their needs, and it's not especially important for that group of people to learn about the details of active versus passive investing and the optimal diversification of a portfolio, Then, to have a default rule, which allows them to opt out if they don't like it, is pretty reasonable if, and this is an important qualification, we can trust the choice architects to produce sensible default rules. If the rules are at risk of being harmful or dumb, then we want active choosing. So this is basically the situation for impersonal default rules, and notwithstanding (coughs) this abstraction, basically a framework like this is all around us, Your computer, your cell phone, your tablet, probably some of the economic interactions you have with other institutions, just have your personal default rules built into them based on an understanding kind of like this. Okay, second claim. We want active choosing to be made by individuals when choice architects, that is the people who devise the water, are biased or lack important information. When the context is familiar, when people like choosing, when learning matters, and when there's relevant diversity within the group. So these are abstractions. They come home, I think, in the standard restaurant or ice cream shop, where we have potential lack of information on the part of the restaurant owners. They don't know that you really like chocolate sundaes or meatloaf. But they put them on the menu. The context is one you can handle. Choice is often fun in a restaurant. <coughs> Learning could matter. And there's diversity. Those are the circumstances that define active choosing. The third claim is where a group is diverse, we want personalized default rules rather than impersonal ones. No travel website offers the same defaults for every person who visits it. That would be ridiculous. If a travel site can learn that you like to sit in the front of the plane, that you like a particular airline, that you like to use a particular credit card, that's a blessing. And so too in the world of retirement plans, where for young people the right to fall plan is different from the one-for-old people. And notice we're talking in these areas always of cases where people have opt-out rights. So freedom of choice is always preserved. Fourth and final claim is that personalized default rules have big advantages over active choosing because they can produce benefits in terms of accuracy without requiring people to, equal to de- devote time and effort to choosing. So the big objection to default rules is they're inaccurate. They won't fit people's personal situations. The big objection to active choosing is that what Oscar Wilde said about socialism might be said about active choosing. It would take too many evenings. And the idea is that personalized default rules take fewer evenings to get people, if they're accurate, what suits their situations. So at least if there are safeguards in place to protect privacy, and if we can trust the choice architects, then personalized default rules deserve um, pretty, serious conversation, pretty serious attention. Okay. I want to say a little bit now to vindicate, I think, what might seem like a counterintuitive thing, that the insistence on active choosing is itself a species of paternalism. A default rule is a form of soft paternalism. If it's working in a way that's respectful of human dignity and autonomy, it is trying to steer people in directions that they want to go, not in directions that the choice architect wants to go. So think of a good default rule in a free society as really being like a GPS, where you mark the direction and it tells you the means. The paternalistic feature of it is about means and it's soft. Nonetheless, there are forms of paternalism that are nudges, and they might seem objectionable for that reason. Notice, if you would, that where choosers would prefer not to choose. A nanny who requires them to choose is overriding their preference, and therefore behaving paternalistically. So there's a strand in the liberal tradition which is choice-friendly, which veers in the direction of paternalism insofar as it's requiring people to make choices in circumstances in which they don't want to be bothered And if we take John Stuart Mill's great essay on liberty as having two reasons for respecting people's choices, they apply really well to justify respect for people's choices when they choose not to choose. The first reason is individual welfare, where Mill said individuals know better than outsiders what best suits their situations. And the second involves individual autonomy, where the claim is people have a right to make their own mistakes from which maybe they'll learn. Both of those arguments apply directly, don't they, to people who are choosing not to choose? If they choose to rely on a default rule or to delegate judgment to an institution or person they trust, they think that their own welfare is promoted by that step and believe that forcing them to choose would be an imposition on what would make their life go best. And if they think that someone or some institution should make a choice for them, whether it's a medical decision or a complicated financial decision, that's how they are exercising their autonomy. And if they make mistakes there by choosing not to choose too much or too little, they will learn from that. That's Bill's point about a is like a muscle that develops their exercise, One choice that is like a muscle-developing exercise is the second-order choice, whether to choose. I'm acutely aware of the abstract nature of these remarks, so my hope is that there will be rifling through minds examples which occur every day in which there's an implicit or explicit judgment, a delegation is being made by me to someone else about how to produce an end that I will, I hope, like. That happens often quickly and unconsciously with friends and families in taxis and on trains, and the choice not to choose is often the right one. Okay, there's a claim for active choosing where the theorist is John Stuart Mill and the novelist is Aldous Huxley, who in Brave New World has a character kind of ironically called the savage who's surrounded by a world of comfortable defaults And the savage says, I don't want comfort. I want God. I want poetry. I want real danger. I want freedom. I want goodness. I want sin. In fact, says his interlocutor, you're claiming the right to be unhappy. All right then, said the savage, I'm claiming the right to be unhappy. Not to mention the right to grow old and ugly and impotent, the right to have syphilis and cancer, the right to have too little to eat the right to be lousy, the right to live in constant apprehension, the right to catch typhoid, the right to be tortured by unspeakable pains of every kind. There was a long silence. I claim them all, said the savage, at last. Now, I think we want to be moved, but not uncritically moved by the savage's final answer, because those who celebrate that particular right probably have not, at least recently, been tortured by unspeakable pains of every kind, or lived in constant apprehension of what they happen. to Nonetheless, there's a fair point. So if we want to go up Huxley's mountain toward what he, I think, he considers a promised land, uh, we would make a defensive active of choosing that emphasizes the importance of learning through activity the difficulty of self narrowing that can occur if we are defaulted into things that track even our own choices, the risks posed by bad choice architects, the fact that there are changes over time in our own tastes and values, which active choosing instantiates and default rules may freeze and prevent, the fact of heterogeneity across populations, And the problem of inertia, which active choosing automatically overcomes. So one difficulty with default rules is they tend to stick. If you've ever been automatically enrolled in a magazine resubscription plan and kept subscribing to a magazine which you don't really like, inertia is the source often of that outcome. Active choosing overcomes inertia. And this is a quintet of arguments in defense of of, of Mill and Huxley. Okay, if we want to go down the mountain to what might be the promised land of another kind, in defense of choosing not to choose, a good way in is from MIT economist Esther DeFlow, who works on the topic of poverty. And she urges we tend to be patronizing about the poor in a very specific sense. which is we tend to think, why don't they take more responsibility for their lives? And we are, what we are forgetting is that the richer you are, the less responsibility you need to take for your own life, because everything is taken care of for you. The poorer you are, the more you have to be responsible for everything about your life. In fact, one characteristic of the condition of poverty is pervasive active choosing in circumstances of desperation where people who are well-off just don't have to worry about that stuff. So Deflo says, stop berating people for not being responsible and start to think of ways instead of providing the poor with luxury that we all have, which is that a lot of decisions are taken for us. If we do nothing, we are on the right track. For most of the poor, if they do nothing, they are on the wrong track. one way of generalizing her point is that the water that the fish swim in is for people in a well-functioning city or society uh, specified in the form of clean water, available doctors, relative freedom from crime, air that it doesn't make you sick to breathe, interactions that don't lead to a risk of contagion, uh, streets that are functional and safe those things are operating by default. There's a high degree of freedom by default. And what Mill and Huxley possibly are missing are the extent to which exercising of the choice muscle gets to be limited by virtue of the fact that its range is not universal. We don't have to choose all of those things. Okay. To specify the burdens on uh, the, the way to go down the mountain, The burdens on choosers in a world of good defaults are reduced. That you don't have to decide in a good legal system whether you're going to have a parliament or a legislature or an independent judiciary. Those are given rather than selected every day. So in an individual life, a wide range of things that are in front of you, whether it's a computer or a table or a chair, are things that you didn't specifically select. And that drives down decision costs for you. And that's no light thing to do. If we had active choosing everywhere, then providers of goods and services would be quickly overwhelmed because the process of selling an automobile or a tablet or a bar of soap would be impossibly complicated in a way that would make the interaction fairly tolerable. It's also true that there's a risk at least in complicated areas of error on the part of choosers where the issues are technical, and, and choosers often welcome a default rule in the face of that fact. In fact, there's data on patient autonomy suggesting that many patients under conditions of stress aren't particularly grateful when a doctor says, here are eight treatment options. do you prefer. And would prefer the doctor to say, here's the medically indicated one, do you want to talk about uh, some alternatives? Okay. I think that by way of conclusion, I'm going to uh, uh, get a little more general and say that there's just one kind of organizing theme on why choosing not to choose can be rational, honorable, consistent with respect for autonomy and dignity. Excellent and of central importance for welfare, and more subtly, good for freedom as well. Because if we didn't choose not to choose in multiple domains, we wouldn't be able to focus our concern and our choices on the things about which we most care. So, the freedom promoting character of a world of default is is kind of the ultimate prize of the argument I'm trying to sketch. And all that's because of the most precious commodity that members of the human species have, time. Thanks.
0: Thank you so much. Um. So I'm going to start just by asking a few general questions before we go um, dive into this um, choosing not to choose idea, which is very much, I guess, related to the idea of nudging to begin with. Um, So my first question is, when Nudge came out in 2008, um, to me and to many other people, it seemed quite revolutionary. Um, So I remember my colleague coming in with a book and saying, you have to read this, Um, and I did. at the same time, when you read it, it seems also very obvious, which when you read it, you say, well, how come this hasn't been done before? There's been behavioral sciences have been used in marketing and businesses. Why do you think it took so long to, for someone to say, let's use it in public policy? And what was different uh, about you and Richard Thaler that allowed you to do it and to make a change at that time?
1: I think it's that the original behavioral science was done by people who were fundamentally interested in rationality and how it mapped onto what actually people do. And they didn't really have public policy concerns in their academic work. So if you think of the early work by Kahneman Tversky, the most well-known, that it doesn't have public policy there in any sense, and there was a kind of uh, caution about whether it bore on much at all beyond the, the tight experiments that they did. Uh, I think it was a happy combination that Thaler, Richard Thaler, who, in my view, was the leading behavioral economist, uh, as opposed to the great psychologist, Conor tversky that he did have a public policy interest. And uh, I had spent a long time at the University of Chicago, where, of course, there's a lot of interest in law and public policy, and it's dominated by rational choice theory. And a lot of predictions and prescriptions for public policy at the University of Chicago grew out of a rational actor model. And I had thought, in reaction to that work, I had responded with a kind of clueless skepticism, meaning I thought, this is not right, because these people who are so insistent on human rationality. Some days they're really sad. Uh, When they play tennis, they don't hit the right shots. They, like, go for a topspin forehand when that's a nonsensical shot. Uh, Some of them feel upset with their own behavior the day before. And so this didn't seem to map onto the theory. Um, But we didn't have an, an alternative account, and once The psychologists and the economists developed an alternative account, which still is growing. Then there was some revisiting to be done of the predictions and the prescriptions. And I guess it occurred to Thaler and me that once you know about the psychology and the behavioral economics, there are some tools that are really very gentle that can have a big impact. And default rules, of course, are the most obvious, but the stunning fact that if you reorder a website or a cafeteria, you can have big changes in what people choose. And any website in every cafeteria has to have an order. There's, just can't avoid that. So there's, then the mind starts thinking, well, what, what can we do that will maybe improve health or increase longevity or avoid people having too many sad days.
0: So you just, you mentioned uh, default rules and changing um, order um, of options. Um, So I'm wondering if you think there are a few basic rules which will drive nudges, good nudges, um, some basic rules of behavior, or is it that we need to customize a nudge for every specific problem?
1: I think it's good. Uh, the, f- the first question is, what is a nudge supposed to do? So there there are clearly nudges that are not good and um, either incompetent go- governments or governments that don't have the interests of their citizens at heart are, in addition to coercion and mandating, they are nudging in bad ways. So the first thing is we need some criteria. And uh, welfare and liberty are two pretty good ones. So if there's a Uh, something that makes people better off by their own lights, then that has good welfare justification. If there's something that liberates them in some way that they would care about, that's a good justification. So the foundation probably should be people's own conception of what makes them uh, better off and more free. And a lot of the nudges have one or another of those characteristics. So that would be foundations. Then in terms of which nudges, it's, it's, it's empirical what's going to have an effect. So we know in the context of retirement savings that a default rule has in favor of retirement, where people are automatically enrolled, that has a massive effect. In fact, in Denmark, it has a bigger effect than significant tax incentives. It's a tremendous finding, yes, where you can cost taxpayers nothing and have a bigger impact than a very expensive program, just by shifting the default. Um, In some areas, uh, what's called the social norms approach is often effective. So if you tell people that they're using more energy at home than most of their neighbors, that can decrease their energy consumption. You might want to think about a default rule in that context, but it might be more contentious because it might be more expensive if it's environmentally friendly. And if, if people aren't taking their medicine or going to doctor's appointments, reminders, which are a nudge, those can be quite effective. So it all, all should be empirically driven with people's own welfare or liberty as our – that's what we care about.
0: Okay. So, so, so you mentioned it has to be empirically tested, which is, which is the other thing that I am really was interested in is once how do we decide – what nudges are the right ones? Um, in terms of, well, I'm assuming you start with some kind of a theory and so on, but practically, would you just go out to the big population? Or would you want to, and would you do it, start in a lab, for example? And what would be, you think, the disadvantage and advantages of going one route to the other?
1: OK. Uh, let me answer in several steps, if I may. So w- I worked in the government of the United States for four years. If I had come in saying, you know, I co-authored a book called Nudge, and we have this behavioral economics, uh, and let's, let's use it, I think people, would have, including the president, might have said, you know, why don't we go back to academic life now? <laughs> so to be centered on problems rather than theories is good. And it, one problem we had in the United States was that poor children who were eligible for free school meals in many cases, weren't getting them because they didn't sign up. And why they didn't sign up isn't entirely clear. They're little kids, so they, they're families. But it would be some, something like their parents are busy or scared or, uh, or unclear of, of how exactly to sign up. And that's a problem, right? People who are entitled to school meals aren't getting them, poor children. And the the solution, which we knew would work, is to default them into free school meals so they didn't have to sign up anymore, supposing we had sufficient knowledge to know who they were, and it turned out that the relevant uh, areas of the country did. And so to to be problem-centered is often good. Now, in the cases that I could list a bunch of examples of for policy purposes, there's very solid behavioral evidence, typically from the real world, not the lab, that is uh, sufficient to make you confident about the likely outcome. In other cases, the real world evidence is the best. So if you can do a randomized controlled trial about which letter gets delinquent taxpayers to pay up or which uh, policy initiative has uh, the effect of reducing energy waste or which disclosure policy actually informs people about something that they care about that involves finances. That's the best, a randomized controlled trial. But, you know, talking to someone who completely knows about this stuff, but uh, the, the lab may give you uh, a cheaper way of having a clean finding, which you because you can control for relevant variables better. And it may be that the lab finding is... Uh, so clear and so powerful that it's clearly going to map onto the real world situation you're thinking about or maybe it's just highly suggestive of something that surprises you and then you go to see if, it's, if that's how the world works.
0: Thank you so much. So let's thank uh, Professor Seinstein for his final inputs. <coughs>